Tonight, we're going to spend just a brief period thinking about the Lord's Supper and what this means for us. I remember once on a Saturday evening, they thank you. Once on a Saturday evening, I was watching the Discovery Channel. I was a kid, and that was one of my favorite things to watch, all the nature programs. And I remember my dad came in and looked at me, and he said, Oh, good, someone who will appreciate this. And he said, I want you to come outside, and I want you to see the real Discovery Channel. And he brought me outside, and in between two trees, shining in the moonlight, was a new spider's web that was being formed. We watched this gigantic spider going round and around, forming this thing, seeming like it was walking on air. And I remember in that moment, I was not curious as to how it was that he was making that. I'd even managed to put aside my personal antipathy towards spiders for the moment. But what I was taken in was wonder. He was right. It really was the Discovery Channel. I wasn't interested in just learning but in discovery, being awed by what was happening in front of me. I think it's really easy for us when we look at the Scriptures and when we look at concepts that are important like the Lord's Supper. We can tend to turn these things into abstract philosophical concepts that we're just supposed to learn instead of be wondered by, instead of discovering. It's... I'm not saying, and please hear me, I'm not saying that theological precision is not important or that theological precepts don't need to be learned and worked through and make sure that we understand. But it's the reason why we learn these things and the reason why we pursue this level of precision is what makes the difference. We want to know the person behind these concepts as best as we possibly can. If I want to make sure that I know what my wife's favorite flower is or to know where her favorite place is for dinner, it's not because I'm here just to pass a quiz on the, like, of the things that my wife likes, but because I know her and love her, I want to know as much about her as I possibly can. And that's what we have here in this supper. And we have covered the theological precisions in previous sermons before. Like this is a visual picture of the gospel. This is bread and grape juice, and it will remain bread and grape juice all the way through. Jesus doesn't need to be re-sacrificed again for our sins because he's done all the work already. This is not just a mere memorial, a little post-it note reminding us of Jesus, but that this is a blessing that we're partaking of. All of those things are important for us to understand. But that's not what I want to focus on in detail tonight. What I want to focus on is the person behind the supper. The person whom we are communing with. Because that's the reason why we have this Lord's Supper. We don't come to commune with Jesus in order to get something. More peace, more joy, a greater sense of assurance of salvation, which we do get those things. But the point of communion with Jesus is Jesus. I don't know, you may remember those times when you were a child and you had a chance to go visit your grandparents, or perhaps maybe you're on the other side of this illustration by now. And the grandchild comes up and is so excited and looks up at you and says, what'd you bring me? 
In that moment, the visit's no longer about the grandparents, is it? It's about the things the grandparents provide. Now, we can excuse little kids for not knowing the profundity of getting to know someone deeply. But certainly as we get older and as we become adults, we begin to appreciate these relationships more and more, don't we? Because we understand who the, what a treasure it is to have someone and how much more so Jesus. I want us to take a look very briefly as we look in this supper, the three things that the, this supper reminds us about Jesus. The first is that this supper blesses us by reminding us of what Jesus did for us. It's a reminder of what Jesus did for us in the past. But it's more than that. It's also a repeating of our fellowship with Jesus in the present. A repeating of our fellowship with Jesus in the present. And finally, this is a revealing of Jesus' return in the future. It's Jesus in the past, the present, and the future is what each of this, this one meal reminds us of and brings us to. So first, what Jesus did for us in the past. This is, as I said at the beginning, a visual picture. There is a reason why at the beginning of the Lord's Supper, I tear the bread apart. Because this is supposed to remind us that Jesus' body was broken for us. It's not scratched, not bruised, not mildly injured, but totally broken. For us, And that's, we will spend more time reflecting on that tomorrow when we come back for our Good Friday service at noon. And there's a reason why I pour out the grape juice into the cup. Is that this is a reminder that Jesus' blood was all poured out for us. There's nothing else that he could give. And it's also a reminder of that's how covenants are formed. Blood has to be spilled. That's how sin is forgiven. Blood has to be spilled. There has to be a substitutionary death for sin to be forgiven. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for us. And he's doing this as an innocent one for guilty people. This is not like one soldier who was just like everybody else and who decided, well, I'm no more special than anybody else here in my unit, so I'm going to be the one to dive on this grenade and save everybody who's behind me. No, Jesus is perfect. He is the one that we should be the ones throwing ourselves on, on the grenade to protect. But instead, he's the one that lays down his life for his friends. And when we just think about that for a moment, that Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who has paid my debt, what else is there left for me to do? There's no more tab for me to pick up. It's all paid for. And that's what Jesus does. There's nothing that we can add to this. That's why the Lord's Supper is not a potluck. We all don't bring something to this table. Jesus is the one who provides all the food, all the drink, all the table settings. And for us to try to bring our own food to the king's table is really an insult to the king, isn't it? That's telling us, eh, your food's pretty good, but... I need to bring something else to really complete the meal. That's not what we see here in the Lord's Supper. We come to the table hungry, ready to be fed, and Jesus is there, ready to give. And that's what we see here in the second thing that this supper reminds us of. 
is that it not only reminds us, but it repeats our fellowship with Jesus in the present. Jesus didn't just do something in the past and is now done. And there's nothing more that Jesus is doing for us. It's not like, well, he wound us up and now he sets us on the track and is going to let us go from there under our own steam. Yes, we need a little bit of wind up, but we're going to take it from here. That's not how it works with Jesus. Jesus is continuing to work with you even now. He continues to pray for you, continues to sustain you, continues to look after you and nourish you. And I think that's what Jesus was getting at in John chapter 6. John 6 is a funny passage. Jesus has just finished feeding 5,000 people by multiplying this few loaves of bread that someone had. And then the next day, the crowd finds him again and says, you know what would help us really believe in you again? Some more of that free bread. Treating Jesus like an olive garden, just there for the bread. And then Jesus says something odd. And for a long time, I didn't understand why it is that he, did, he does this. Then he turns to the crowd and he says that I'm the bread of life. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part in me. No part of eternal life. And I just thought, Jesus, why would you say it like that? Are you trying to be offensive? This is really strange. Sure enough, a bunch of people leave at this point. That was a bridge too far for a lot of people. Now you see the disciples saying, this is a hard saying. We're not going to go any further than that. But I think after studying for this and what we've been seeing with our Sunday school this last few weeks, I think I might have an idea as to why Jesus does this. It's not the definitive answer by no means, but what I think he is doing here is he's trying to tell the crowd, if you're going to follow me, the blessing is me. Don't just come here for the bread. If you're only here for what Jesus gives you, then, well, it's like you're like that grandchild I mentioned at the beginning of this service. If we're saying, Lord, I would like some peace, please. Can you make that happen? I'd like some joy. I'd like to not feel bad about the mistakes that I've and the sins that I've committed in the past. Can you take care of that? That's not why we approach Jesus. We approach Jesus because of who he is. We don't look for peace and find Jesus. We look for Jesus, and that's where we find peace. It's subtle, but it makes all the difference in the world. You come into Jesus for the free bread, or are you coming to Jesus because you want him? Because you want the culmination of redemptive history. That's why I think when we come to this Lord's Supper, and where we get the blessing out of it, the spiritual nourishment, is in Jesus' presence itself. That's why Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17, a cup of blessing. And what's interesting is when he will talk about, he uses the word participating in Christ. The word translated participation is the word koinonia, which means fellowship. Fellowshipping with Christ in this supper. Now, there is a sense in which we're always fellowshipping with Christ. Because he's always with us. He promised to be with us until the end of the age. But there's something special about a spiritual presence of Christ as we go through this supper. I got to thinking about, you know, this is a means of grace, a means of God's blessing to us. And it's one among others. 
Bible reading is a means of grace, and prayer is a means of grace. But there's something special about the Lord's Supper, I think. The Bible is the means in which both those who are converted to Jesus will read and find blessing. But that's where the unconverted go to find out who Jesus is, isn't it? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. It's a means of grace that the unsaved can, can, can partake in and find who Jesus is. It's the same thing with prayer. Prayer is the way that we get our wills in tune with God. But it's also the means in which the unsaved cry out for salvation to Jesus. But there's something different about the Lord's Supper, isn't it? That one's only for those that have already come to Christ. Those who have already been unified with Jesus, united to him in faith. This is reserved for Christians. And there's something special about that. The front door and the foyer, if we could use in that way, is open to everybody. But the table is for us. And this is a beautiful blessing, a chance for us to fellowship with Christ, to have dinner with a friend of sinners, a friend who sticks closer than a brother, the bridegroom of the church. I remember my rehearsal dinner for my wedding. It was a lovely dinner. But what made it great was not the fact that it was pasta, although that was very good. It wasn't the fact that I was surrounded by family and friends, although that was nice. The main focus for me was my bride-to-be. And that's what made the evening special. That's what made it a great meal. And in fact, it would be her absence alone that would make that great meal a terrible meal if she wasn't there. Because this meal points, that rehearsal dinner pointed to a future in which we would be together forever. And that's the same thing that's figured here in this Lord's Supper as we look at our final point this evening. That not only do we see a reminder of what Jesus had done in the past, not only do we have a repetition of the fellowship with Christ here in the present, but thirdly, we see a revealing of the return of Jesus. Did you notice something really subtle when Jesus is laying out the Lord's Supper? And he tells in verse 16, he says, For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's pointing towards something future, isn't he? What I think he's pointing to is in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We sit down and have a face-to-face meal with Christ. That's what this is pointing to. My favorite kind of food at restaurants is appetizers especially if they're really good appetizers, because that points you to yet more food that's coming and even better food. And that's what this is. This is an appetizer. This is a foretaste of glory divine that's on its way where we will see Jesus. That's what makes it special. It's not the fact that it's going to be in heaven. It's not the fact that it's going to be a particular type of food that's served there. I don't know what it will be. I'm sure it'll be good. And I'm sure that will be the last thing we're focused on. I'm sure it will be Jesus that will capture all of our attention around that table. As we say to ourselves, we have been practicing for this meal for a long time. 
We've been at this rehearsal dinner for a long while. But the wedding is now here. That's what we look forward to. And oh, there's so much more to know. In closing, I remember there was a story, uh, it may even be true, of the theologian Thomas Aquinas. He was a Catholic theologian who, while by no means got everything correct, he laid down a framework that people have been studying for the last 800 years, wrote thousands of pages, and was in the midst of writing his crowning achievement just months before he passed. And it was said that he was at a church service one time, and he was arrested with some vision that he saw. And apparently, according to his testimony, had saw into heaven and saw Christ. And he never wrote anything again in the months after. And this is what he said when asked why. He said, I can do no more. The end of my labors has come. Such things have been revealed to me that all that I have written seems to me as so much straw. Now I await the end of my life and after that of my works. Aquinas gets it. This is not to say that we don't try to learn as much as we can. But we always keep in mind that the best is yet to come. You can read about somebody all you want. But when you meet them, it makes all the difference in the world. If you've ever met somebody on, on the internet, then finally met them in person. It's a completely different experience, wasn't it? In the same way, we read up as much as we can. We soak up this word like we would a letter from a lover. But in the end, we have all more to look forward to when we see the bridegroom face to face. That's what this supper is pointing forward to. So let's take of it together. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that we have together to reflect, to remember, and to proclaim all that you have done for us, are doing for us, and will do for us. And you're at the center. You have accomplished all things, sustain all things, and are the point of all things. Oh, help us keep that perspective. Help us not get distracted by trivial things, but help us to keep our constant look to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.